Hey guys, this is Scott from Providence. And David from Maryland. And Jenny from Brooklyn. We are the Judson Podcast, a diverse group of friends who get together to talk about faith, culture, and all the things that interest us. And today to get us started, our question of the week is, what is something that you have accomplished in the past week or so? What's something that you are proud of? And my answer to this question is something that maybe not many other people would be proud of, but I am. So I recently got a city bike membership and I, for the first time, bicycled all the way to work, which for me is really far. It's a little bit more than four miles. <laughs> um, and it's a little bit scary because you have to bike over the <laughs> Manhattan Bridge and you're biking through Manhattan, you know, feel like you might die. But I did it and it was great. And I saved that 275 subway fare. Nice. Any hills? The bridge is pretty steep getting up onto the bridge. I just had it on the lowest setting and people were just zooming past me. <laughs> now, Jenny, you are a runner. You like to run. I always assume that people who are good at running are also good at biking. No. But I guess that's <laughs> not true. Why is that not true? Isn't it your leg muscles? My arms hurt so much. <laughs> Interesting. From biking? Yes, because, and then your neck hurts too, because part of biking, and maybe I'm doing it wrong, but you're holding the handlebars pretty tightly and you're twisting your upper body while your, your arms are stationary. So my pecs hurt a lot and the back of my neck hurts from kind of leaning forward but holding my head up at the same time. I know that that's right because mm. I've heard that on the um, Tour de France, they actually have to use duct tape sometimes to tape the back of their head to their suit to hold their head up so that they can keep bicycling. Wow. Yeah. I'm still very <laughs> proud of myself. And nice. it still feels bizarre and kind of luxurious to just pop that bike into the rack and just walk away without worrying about it. Like I didn't realize when I had a bike before my bike was stolen, how much anxiety it gave me to lock my bike and leave it somewhere or to try to finagle my bike up into my office and leave it somewhere in the office. Cool. How about you guys? What's something that you accomplished? I started trying to do some more, I don't know, run, walk type stuff to go and get moving, I guess. So I guess I'm not someone who really likes running. I'd rather bike. <laughs> Mostly, I guess, reading about some like aerobic work versus just always being um, drawing on the high intensity stuff, but just more doing more low intensity walk, jog type stuff. So good about that. Sidewalk walking, um, hiking, or walking in parks and bike paths. What's your preferred? I was doing parks and like just on the street, and then recently more like the track. Especially because in one high school near me, it's like there's a lot of people playing soccer. So I'm not playing with them because I'm uh, still trying to distance. But at least I can see that while I'm running and walking. David, you always need to be around people. Yep. <laughs> what about you, Scott? <laughs> Did you achieve your... <laughs> so, like, I'm the, I'm the exact opposite, right? Right. If there's people around, I'm like, ugh, I don't want to walk here. <laughs> I have to look at people and I have to see them, like, doing their people things. <laughs> so gross. 
For myself, what I'm proud of is that recently I've been making my own juice. Amber bought one of those high-end cold press juicers. Ooh. Instead of like shredding the produce, it like squeezes it and grinds it. So it's supposed to be a better way to extract nutrients. And it's been fun because I have a ton of stuff in my gardens that I don't know what to do with. I just screw them. I don't know why. <laughs> so for example, I have like Swiss chard, <laughs> red leaf lettuce, cucumbers, and you can only eat them for so long before you get sick of them. And by so long, I mean like once. So I have like five heads of lettuce. I'm like, what the heck do I do with this? <laughs> so it turns out um, you can make mm. awesome green juice by just juicing an apple and whatever is in your garden. I feel super healthy. And um, it's my excuse for eating chicken wings later in the day. <laughs> yeah, so welcome back to another episode of the Justin Podcast. You know, every week it's been so great to see listeners tune in, join our conversations, give us feedback. So if there's anything you really want to hear us talk about, or if there's a topic that you really like that you want us to develop it further, you know, let us know. So for this week, we want to talk about denominationalism. In Protestant Christianity, there are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of different denominations. And people really don't understand why that has to be. You know, if we are a people that are called to be unified, why does there seem to be so much division? And so that's the question we want to answer today. Do denominations even matter anymore? And so we thought we could start off this discussion by talking about our own experiences. You know, what kind of denominations we participated in and the pros and cons of those experiences. Uh, Scott, do you want to go? I grew up in uh, a Korean Presbyterian church. And so that was my first experience with denominations, realizing that there are churches that like to sing hymns and only hymns. Obviously, as my younger self, I thought that was weird. You know, churches that are very kind of hierarchical and authoritarian. That's what the Korean Presbyterian structure is. And then when I was in college and really got into personal discipleship, I joined a evangelical non-denominational church. And, you know, I was able to appreciate the independence. But then, you know, I also saw the pitfalls of that. You know, when you don't have a larger national network to be a part of, Oftentimes, decisions are made on the fly. Decisions are made unilaterally. And then most recently, I joined the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And all the conflicted feelings I had about denominations were magnified being in that setting. Because like I mentioned, I felt like my hands were tied behind my back oftentimes. Mm -hmm. In CMA churches, the denominational structure is imprinted into the local congregation in a way that is almost suffocating. I can see the positive side of it in that it feels like you're connected to churches that are across the country. It feels like you are connected to missions that are happening around the world. On the other hand, um, there's almost no sense of like independence of the congregation being creative, coming up with its own plans, and then executing those plans. There's almost no way to do that because everything had to be done through a very strict bureaucratic mm -hmm. system of decision making through elder board and committee. Obviously, after being like, oh, I came out of it even more jaded than ever before about denominations. And now I wonder if they're doing more harm than good. It's interesting. It sounds like you had an experience where there was no higher authority. And then also an experience where there's too much bureaucracy. Oh, yeah, definitely. Why do Christians have to live at extremes? So there's like no accountability versus inability to do anything. <laughs> Seems like healthy balance is something that Christians are really bad at. Mm. 
I also wanted to ask if you could define the Korean Presbyterian Church. Does that just mean that it was all Korean people who attended? Like, does it, would it feel different from like a white Presbyterian church? I would say that the traditionalism of Korean culture lent to an even stricter culture of authoritarianism within the local Presbyterian congregation. All the things about filial piety are even more magnified when it's in a highly ordered church setting. Mm-hmm. Mm. I could see that. What about you guys? I can go. Even after a bit of whittling down the list, I feel like it looks like my uh, job history. We got like one year here, <laughs> one year there. So growing up, my parents attended a non-denominational church. And then we went to a couple different churches after moving, but eventually settled on an AG church, Assemblies of God. And then in college, where I was able to pick a church, <laughs> I went away to college and started attending a Church of the Brethren at UConn. What is that? Quakers. Um, which is extremely different. Um, they believed, the one that I went to at least, believed that women need to wear head coverings at church, that women cannot teach. All the songs mm. were hymns and were sung a cappella, and it was only lay people that spoke. There was no pastor or authority who had his MDiv. It was just the elders, basically, of the church that would speak. And so I went from attending a church that had maybe a couple hundred people to one that on a small Sunday might have only 15 people. Mm. Why did you start attending the Quaker church? <laughs> so I think this is a theme you can see throughout all the churches that I chose to attend, which is that it wasn't about the structure or about the beliefs of the church, but it was more about the community that was there. I think one of the difficult things to find as a college student is mentorship. It's a great place to find friends. You're with a whole bunch of people at your same stage of life, studying the same things, who are all your same age. But this church had mostly much older members, like in their 70s. And they had decided that what they wanted to do was reach out to students on campus at the University of Connecticut. Um, so they kind of assumed that role of parent or grandparent to us. They did let college students attend without wearing head coverings. So I went to that church without wearing a head covering. So the outreach actually seemed effective. Very, yes. Interesting. They would come to campus to teach little seminars for us. We were a bunch of nerds. And they would take us out to lunch after church. They would like take us to a diner. It was so much like having a grandparent who lived near you. Some of these people went on to like mentor and care for us and preside at weddings after this. Like they definitely developed these really strong relationships with the students. Interesting. Then I moved back to Connecticut and I attended a Baptist church, which was a church plant that kind of fizzled out. Then, <laughs> so many, I attended Bible studies at all of these churches and did develop friendships there. And actually, all this time, I had been attending Saturday night services at a covenant denomination church. The ECC? Yeah. I attended this covenant church, which their statement of faith is basically the Bible. Like everyone. Like a lot of churches. But it's cool. <laughs> What's your statement of faith? The Bible. But 
this covenant church, one of their pastors that would speak on Saturday night decided to plant his own new covenant church in the city of Hartford where I lived, which is Hartford City Church, which I absolutely adore that church. I've talked about it on many episodes before as being a great example of many things. So I immediately got involved when he started that church plant. But then I moved to New York City and attended Redeemer, which is another Presbyterian church that I do not agree with their theology. Um, But the reason I attended Redeemer is because all the sermons I do agree with strongly, and they're very intellectual sermons that simultaneously are understandable by somebody who doesn't know very much about theology. So I love how all the sermons are both accessible and brainy at the same time. And now I'm kind of looking around for a new church. What was unsatisfactory about Redeemer? They started a Wednesday night service that my community group leader coach described it best. She said she called it a church for the one sheep as opposed to a church for the 99. So I had been getting dissatisfied a bit with the homogenous nature of the church. The lack of diversity. Yeah, it's mostly upper middle class, white and Asian young professionals, millennials. And these Wednesday night services were much more colorful. There were fewer white and Asian people and more black people who attended. It seemed more reflective of the diversity of the city. Um, There were people of different socioeconomic status too. Um, But unfortunately, because of money issues, they had to ax this service. So when they canceled the service, I said, I can't go back. Mm. So the regular 1,000 person Sunday morning services, when this was so good, I need to look for a new church. Yeah. That's a resume. How about you, David? <laughs> Mine is shorter. <laughs> but just as valid and yeah. I kind of grew up going to a church. I was actually looking it up because I think it's it's American Baptist, and um, which I was reading actually is basically is what split apart from the Southern Baptist group over slavery. So yeah, Baptists are Baptists are basically the most autonomous, almost non-denominational, right? Because local churches have the authority to kind of do whatever, in a sense. Yeah, it's a congregationalist style of governing, right? And so they basically the main thing that makes them Baptists is believing in water baptism, as it says in the Bible. No, I'm joking. Just as opposed to sprinkling people to baptize them when they become Christians. We should also mention for um, listeners who don't know, the Southern Baptist Convention, the SBC, is actually the single largest Protestant and the single largest evangelical denomination in the United States. They have a problematic history. Uh, they've addressed it a few times. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. A few times, kind of. It sounds But good. then they keep making a very... They really keep making offensive mistakes over and over again. I think the word you're looking uh, for is sin. Yeah, and they just keep chugging along. And one of the reasons why they're still so big is they are are aggressively expanding. Even in Providence and in the state of Rhode Island, there's been a couple SBC church plants over the last few years. I do know that someone recently in Atlanta has has, uh, left the Southern Baptist uh, denomination. But anyway, growing up, I was in an American Baptist church, 
in college, I went to United Church of Christ Church. Again, not really because of theology, but just because it was a close walk to church, um, which is very liberal in its views from, a, I guess, more of the mainline, more white, I guess, group, even though this one was multi-ethnic, a lot of Cape Verdeans. Yeah, we should also explain that term, mainline. Yeah, because when non-Christians hear that term mainline, they think that means like, oh, it's the churches that most Christians go to. It's not. Right. Yeah, mainline is a term that refers to... It means call him up Jesus on the mainline, tell him what you want. <laughs> what? <laughs> Jesus is on the mainline, tell him what you want. <laughs> so mainline refers to theologically liberal Protestant churches, uh, which are obviously on the decline. But they're called mainline because in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the mainline liberal churches used to be the predominant Protestant churches in the United States. Um, they used to be more popular than conservative churches. Mm -hmm. But then they started going on the decline. Obviously, they, they went further and further away from the gospel. And now they are mainly dying out. And how is being theologically liberal different from being politically liberal? Good question. That's an important distinction for our podcast because most of us, most of our guests are politically liberal but theologically conservative. By theologically liberal, we mean a belief system that does not believe that Jesus Christ is divine, that does not believe in the supernatural or in miracles, that believes that Jesus was just a man and um, a religious symbol of faith for modern day people. Theologically liberal and politically liberal are two completely different things. And it is really important that we don't mix those two up. Mm -hmm. The mainline Protestants tend to be theologically and politically liberal, whereas the evangelical Protestants tend to be theologically and politically conservative. Whereas when you get into more minority churches, especially in the black church, it tends to be more theologically conservative but politically liberal, mm. which is one of the big differences. For a long time, people have been saying, you know, I'm interested in faith, but I'm against organized religion. And when we use that phrase, you know, organized religion, institutionalized religion, oftentimes what we're really referring to are very bureaucratic systems created by these national denominational networks. I feel like when people say they're against, they don't want religion, it's also, but they don't want to go to a church building and participate in a church service that has songs and a message and all of that stuff. Organized religion is kind of inevitable. Like if we were to start our own grassroots microchurch five years, ten years down the line, we would be organized in some way. Yeah, people like their routines. Mm -hmm. As there became a need for policies and roles and positions, it's kind of an inevitable function of humans coming together. The deeper issue that people are talking about is, you know, stale faith, right? A faith that is controlled by agendas and doesn't seem to be led by the Spirit. Isn't that what you say is kind of what people are really getting at? Yeah, like I just want a connection with God, but I got to join this thing with all these people. Yeah. Another example that uh, comes to mind for me, when my CMA church was led by a minority leadership that was more disconnected from the bureaucracy of the larger organization, the governance of the church was arranged in such a way that allowed new ideas to get off the ground quickly and to flourish. When the district office began to press its power over the day-to-day -day management of our church, it completely changed. Instead of being able to like develop an idea immediately, now the district was requiring everybody to 
write out the proposals in a report, wait until the monthly elder board meeting, sit in front of the elders to present their idea, wait for the church board to vote on the idea, wait for the new amendments, submit a second proposal. <laughs> and after all that was done, you know, after like a month or so of inefficient planning, you know, then their outreach idea could finally get launched. I, I would call that an example of quenching the spirit. It just killed any passion that anyone had for their ideas. And that's what I saw happening because of organized religion. You're making me think that this denomination problem is oftentimes a people problem. Because when I'm looking back at our church histories, we often see ourselves putting up with the structure of the denomination and putting up with whatever sort of weird um, requirements they have or theology we don't agree with um, because we want to be with people, because we want to be in community. So it's not because of the structures that were part of these churches. It's almost in spite of the structures. Mm. Yeah, and what you said, Scott, reminded me of like people's frustrations with government. That's why like only what half of Americans vote anyway. Yeah. But yeah, just the frustration with it. I think you see this problem of oversight, particularly when someone is planting a church, because being part of an Acts 29 network church, it seems like what they basically did was send this guy a bunch of books and say, good luck. Like, <laughs> there wasn't a really great support structure in place. Whereas when I was part of the Covenant denomination church plant, I saw that structure kind of bear more positive results. Like there's more accountability and the pastor was put into a network of other potential church planters and was able to learn from people who had planted a church, you know, and was were slightly further down the road than he was. And they also give support from the Covenant denomination as a whole for the first three years. Um, so that even though the pastor is still just starting a church, they're able to work on it full time. So that, in contrast to the Acts 29 network, seemed to be much healthier for the pastor. Mm. So I think it's hard to have a structure that really does what it's supposed to, like gives enough freedom but also enough support? What do you think? I think it's also tied to our discussion about white supremacy in that the people that I see do really well in like a church planting system and a denominational system are young white pastors. <laughs> and the ones that often get burned are minority church planters who are dealing with people in superior positions that are white and not from their same cultural background. Even the, mm -hmm. when you're mentioning the ECC, Jenny, like I know people who had great experiences with the ECC, and I know a couple people who had poor experiences with the ECC and left that denomination. And the two people I can think of who left the ECC were actually black people. Not surprised. Jenny, you said it was a people problem. And I think, yeah, when you think about like the cultural differences and, and how the ministers coming up right now are diverse and hungry and... The old guard, those who are controlling the church networks and the way that the churches are managed and, and run, are from a different way of life. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question then is like, should we still be tolerating denominations as they are? 
and and to be in small house churches as well. Do you think that kind of goes along with being non-denominational? The clear command of the New Testament is for Christians to be in unity, right? For Christians to come together, to meet together. I was going to go to there. To assemble yeah. together. And as Jesus says in John 17, it is one of the chief ways that the world will be swayed by the truth of Christianity is by seeing our unity. You're saying exactly so far what I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea of denominations, for all the positives that I think we all agree on, the idea of denominations is fundamentally against that command because everyone says they believe in the, in the unity of the saints and the holy universal church. But then when, when everything you do is within your denomination, you know, your church affairs, your conferences, your teachings and everything, at the end of the day, there's no room left over for any kind of real unity, uh, which the term for that is ecumenism. And by being non-denominational, I've seen non-denominational churches do a better job of partnering with other churches in their region. You know, almost by necessity, these non-denominational pastors have to build their own networks. And so they start reaching out to other pastors. But even then, the race part comes in. When I see these pastoral networks, it's always the white pastors hanging out with the white pastors, the Spanish-speaking pastors hanging out with the Spanish-speaking pastors, and there is zero overlap. I've been to Unity events, Unity worship nights, where you walk in and it's all the same people. Where is the Dominican church down the road? Where is the black church you know, across the neighborhood? I feel like also there are some differences that are just, I don't know, don't you think there are some differences that are just too different? Uh, like, a church that is Spanish-speaking is like the kind of easy example. But then the, that's the question. How are we supposed to obey the, the command of Scripture when we don't even speak the same language? Even if we switch to a small church model, and maybe you say, you know, church is, is purely based on proximity. So everyone who lives near this place goes to this church, and everyone who lives here goes to this church. Even if you had that, the churches would still have to be unified with each other. They would still have to coordinate with each other to do, you know, outreach events or to work with New York City, you know, because in my city, there would be thousands, hundreds of thousands of these little tiny churches. That's why networks exist. I think, I hate to say this, but it seems like the longer Christianity exists before Jesus comes back, it's almost like there's been more and more divisions. I think there's good reasons for churches to do different things, and then there's bad reasons. If something's going to be split up based on language, I think that's a pretty good reason to be different than someone else or have a different church set up. But if it's like people can't agree on racial justice, there's splits. And it's like splits on bad terms. It's like if you maybe break up with someone or you quit a company and you're on bad terms. And I think that goes very much against the unity that we're supposed to show from what Jesus' words were, which is like people are supposed to know us by our love for each other. Christians are supposed to be one. That's how you're supposed to know Jesus came from the Father. There are good and bad reasons to be separate. Denominations are going to have to exist. I used to be more naive about that. I guess that's going to be reality. But people should be striving for unity wherever possible. And I think in some ways, maybe Catholics would laugh at us about this, saying this, but there should be more self-correction, some sort of mediating groups 
Well, I think the church could kind of capitalize on the fact of what we were saying before, that most of their attendees did not choose the church based on its theology. They chose it, you know, based on the community and the atmosphere, like they feel comfortable there. So the church that's full of grandparents who like to sing hymns on Sunday can partner with the church that appeals to a bunch of young professionals and develop mentorship opportunities. Like why make them go to the same place for their church service if they like different things? Well, I think we're talking about different levels, reasons for splitting, because I was mentioning more like... Well, the reasons for splitting, you're saying we're not were not good, like there was hatred and there was deep division in theology. But the reasons that the that 95% of the attendees are going to those churches is not because of those reasons. It's because of these more benign, but I think for many people, very more important differences <laughs> that are just like, I have community here. Um, I think most people who go to Redeemer, for example, very educated people with advanced degrees, don't know that their church believes that Jesus didn't die for everybody. I think if you told that to a bunch of American millennials, hey, your church actually doesn't believe that Jesus died for everybody. They would just be kind of appalled at that. To give background to what Jenny is saying, yes, one of the five points of Calvinism is called limited atonement. And limited atonement um, says that John 3.16 isn't true. <laughs> John 3.16, the famous Bible verse, says that God so loved the world that he sent his only son Jesus to die. Limited atonement says that when Jesus died, he did not die on behalf of the whole world. He died specifically for Christians. For those who would accept him. Yeah. So Calvinism, in a sense, is much more exclusionary. And like Jenny was saying, a lot of churches come from a Calvinist background and don't explicitly teach on this exclusionary, privileged belief system. And so a lot of people would probably be surprised to know that about their own churches. So that's the reason for the split originally, but that doesn't need to be a reason for disunity. Like there's no, there isn't animosity between the actual people who attend these churches. Like they would be happy to work together. You mean Calvinist Armenian, you mean? Yeah. Or old people, young people? Yeah. And I think that's kind of what I was getting at. Maybe you're introducing another category, because I was mentioning divisions, good divisions and bad divisions, like old, young, or theological differences that people do not have animosity with each other about. I guess, yeah, that's a practical way of thinking about it as well. I do think that Christians among preference, not that it's easy. But I do think there's a pretty serious call towards unity, even if there is a church to go out and reach XYZ people. I don't know. There should be a lot of unity over preference, I think, for Christians. Yeah. So the point that Jenny brings up is actually why I feel really troubled about the state of the church. Because, you know, a lot of people are choosing the places that they learn about their faith based on comfort and aesthetics and who they know, and what makes them feel safe, which uh, for most things in life is fine. But by doing so, it actually um, it creates further segregation in Christians' lives. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think just the whole modern-day church system is so insidious. I mean, we all want to be comfortable, and I, 
we even said in the multicultural episode, like, hey, there's a place for ethnic churches. People need to be comfortable. When you're like a weary black person and you've had to struggle all week long, you just want to be somewhere where you can not have your guard up. So I understand that. You want to be able to be a person and not a black person or And have our our specific tradition valued. Yeah. But then people don't realize by living this sort of lifestyle of faith that is all based off of your preferences, we're actually entrenching ourselves more in our ideological and political bubbles, further slowly drifting apart in our beliefs and in our practices until finally something happens where we see like, oh, we are not the same. Mm -hmm. And that happened in 2016 with the Trump election. We all thought we were the same, right? If you go to a black church, (laughs) if you go to a white church, it doesn't matter. You're still the same. You still believe in the gospel. And then 2016 showed, nope, actually these small differences that we didn't really think about, they actually add up to like a really big difference. But people who believe the same things tend to live near each other too. So Mm. wouldn't you get that anyway with a small church model? I think that's a good point. I don't think house churches are like the solution to this problem. I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, simpler is better. Let's just go back to square one. And that's not really the answer. The greater point that I'm getting at is kind of like what David was saying about, is your church the way it is for good reasons or for bad reasons, right? Right. I think bringing up the SBC and the ABC churches is a great example. When abolitionism was like a real controversial thing, You know, there are churches and denominations that split along the issue of slavery. If you decided to join a church because it was an abolitionist church, that church is like, is a church that is actually serving the kingdom of God and will be faithfully rewarded in the hereafter. That's the type of church that we should all desire to be a part of. And of course, that's harder to see today because (laughs) there's a lot more moral ambiguity. Mm Mm-hmm. So like whether you're starting like a mega church or whether you're starting a house church, I do think it goes back to what you're saying, David. Do you have a good reason for existing? I think that's a good question for the year 2020 in light of the moment we're having for social justice. The election is going to come up and people are going to watch to see what white evangelicals, white churches, whether they're denominational or non-denominational, They're waiting to see what white people are going to do for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christian unity. And actually, Scott, if I could say something real quick, uh, there's a CNN article called Why Black Christians Are Bracing for a White Lash, White Backlash. Mm -hmm. Actually, in the article, it says, according to a recent Pew poll, eight in 10 white evangelicals say they would vote for Trump again. Or the poll was from a... July 1st, uh, Pew article. So there you go. About the same. (laughs) That's that makes me want to like leave the country. Like after all the, I don't know, this is a political rant (laughs) right now. But after like, after it's clear. Scott's political rant. Let's go. Scott is showing us the difference (laughs) between theologically conservative and politically conservative. I said before, like we don't have an issue that's as clear as abolition versus slavery. But, you know, we do have Black Lives Matter versus not caring about black lives. And we clearly have a leader who does not care about black lives, has done nothing, absolutely nothing in support of black lives. Zero. Then you know, obviously all the other corruption, all the other charges, all the other abuses of power, all the other payoffs, bribes, and extortion schemes. If the percentage of white Christians remains the same at the end of 2020, um, like, I don't know what we're doing. <laughs> I don't know what the church is doing. The whole thing needs to be blown up somehow. 
Wow. <laughs> I think another thing from that article, another historian, Michael um, Emerson, mentioned it. But another thing from this article I think is very, very, very important is speaking to your whole blow it up thing. Emerson noted that only 1% of white Christians worship in a racially mixed or predominantly African-American church. Nearly all of the increase in diverse congregations has been a result of Black and Latino Christians worshiping at predominantly white churches where they have, haven't have always had positive experiences. We have to understand that basically the method of church unity has been a worldly method where people who are in the minority outside the church are still asked to work for unity as the minority inside the church. It should be flipped. You know, it's like Christians who are in high positions right. should rejoice in the low position and vice versa. You know, it said back then free people should consider themselves slaves of Christ. We're supposed to balance things out. But our methods have been white people are in control outside and then white people are in control inside. And we have to reclaim Christian identity outside of evangelical church. Like you're saying, Scott, like connection back to the early Christians, claiming that outside of white evangelicalism. So that's a great point, David. And it goes back to like why I focus so much on racial reconciliation and race issues when it comes to faith. Being part of a originally white denomination, being part of an originally white church system infects you with the values of white supremacy. And I think the book you mentioned, Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, that is a great support piece to what I'm talking about. The main finding in that book was about the different perceptions of justice, the different perceptions of inequality between white versus black Christians. So if you are black and you're a Christian, you were raised up in a black denomination, in a black church, um, you are more aware of inequality and racial justice than black non-Christians. If you are white and you grew up in a white denomination, you are less aware of systemic inequalities than your white non-Christian counterpart. And that is very damning to white churches. And so what that finding tells me is that historically black denominations emphasize a gospel that puts justice and social change at the forefront. And that's easy to see when you just look at the history of civil rights. All of the major civil rights leaders grew up in the black church and learned about how to fight inequality through the black church. Martin Luther King Jr., Ella Baker, Rosa Parks, Fannie Lou Hamer, all of them, you know, got their grit, got their courage from the black church. And so I agree with you, David. The fact that white Christians are not being exposed to this type of faith is, you know, part of the reason why we have so many evangelicals out there supporting Trump and um, supporting a status quo that is based on oppression and privilege. How to, I think a big discipleship issue is going to be how to shepherd people towards reconnecting toward other branches of Christianity. But you know what? The white pastors and the white denominations aren't going to do that. No, of course they're not going to do that. They're <laughs> like going to say like, oh, yeah, yeah. just don't become a liberal or oh, just you're going to become an atheist now. <laughs> so another quick CMA story. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
So basically, every season I had to go to a CMA conference, a regional conference. And one thing I noticed happened several times uh, during these conferences is there would be some kind of Q&A session and somebody like a pastor, a minister, someone from the audience would ask, what are we doing about building relationships between white and non-white CMA churches? So this was actually on people's radars. White ministers, white congregations knew that there were Spanish-speaking, Laotian-speaking, Cambodian-speaking CMA churches near them, and they wanted to start networking with them. And several times, the district superintendent said, you know, that's not really something that's part of our agenda. That's something that has to start at the national level first. It's, it's something that we're aware of, and which means they're not doing jack about it. It's not, it's not their agenda. Yeah. Yeah, because they can, yeah, whatever. I don't care about <laughs> It sounds almost like denominationalism is a tool that's being used by people to kind of silo themselves and put themselves into homogenous groups. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Rather than the other way around, like people's tendency is to homogenize themselves. Mm-hmm. So I guess I still, I want to see ways that churches can still be different from each other. Like on those metrics that you mentioned, comfort, aesthetics, who you know at church, I feel like there are ways for churches to be different and still have a diverse um, congregation. So Jenny raises like a really good question. Like, what are we actually picturing when we're talking about unity, right? When we're talking about the unity of all believers. I think a lot of people have this idea of unity as conformity. You have to worship the same way. Maybe you Mm -hmm. have to like do the same type of liturgy. And you lose some of the vibrance and the unique differences of the congregations. I agree with you, Jenny. Like, we don't want to lose that because those are all gifts from the Spirit that we can worship in our own unique cultures and expressions. A term I've seen is, is unity, not as conformity, but unity as pluriformity, where, um, you know, you keep those unique distinctions, but there is like, there's more of a tangible structure of being together. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. music is the one that people often bring up as being a petty difference. Like, oh, you just like listening to a different type of music. It's like choosing what type of sneaker to wear. I guess for some people, that's actually a big deal. So maybe that is a good example. But I think music is the one that people often point to as being petty. Like, who really cares what type of music it is? And I used to believe that, but I will die on this hill right now. I think (laughs) music makes a huge difference. And there's a vast difference in the music that is used to worship God at different types of churches. And many people will agree that the theology or the sermons do make a difference. But at many churches, the music is half the service. Half the service is worship and half the service is the teaching. Yeah, music is your history. I went to a church for two years and I really tried. And the first few Sundays were actually better than the Sundays after I had been attending for two years. I couldn't worship to that music. I couldn't do it. And so I was visiting the Covenant Church that I went to for eight years, those Saturday night services. And those were the only times that I was worshiping in the body 
which I think is a significant thing that needs to happen for us as Christians. Otherwise, we could just do church by ourselves. Why do we need other people? But I think it's important to be worshiping in a body of believers, unified together, all worshiping together. And I remember crying on Sunday morning at Redeemer Church because I couldn't worship. I was in a room full of a thousand people who hopefully most of them were worshiping, and I believe that they were, but I couldn't do it. So I used to see music as being just, oh, you know, whatever. And now I kind of don't because it did make a big difference for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's something there. I have similar, somewhat a similar connection. Like when I went to, um, when I have visited Catholic churches with friends, or one of my friends has said, for Protestants, the sermon, maybe the uh, music is kind of the main part of the service, whereas for Catholics, it's the communion. The Eucharist. and among the different diversities that we should have and different music that we should have, I think that, like, for example, church is a family gathering. And I think if you have family gatherings, it's kind of understood that everything that we like isn't necessarily going to be the main thing on display, but it's like we're there as a family. That's something that I saw from the Catholic Church. Like, no one goes there assuming that their unique things are going to be spoken to necessarily. So I don't know if I'm what I'm saying is against your hill, Jenny, but maybe it's a, an add-on to it. But I do think that it's good to have spaces for Christians as, as much as we need the uniqueness. We need to have spaces that are like the family dinners, in a sense, where people come together. I like what Scott said, pluriformity. Yeah. That idea that we can be different and still unified. Mm-hmm. Different in the right ways. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. We still need to be unified. We still need to be more diverse. And we can't use denominations to silo ourselves and to make a group of people that looks and thinks and feels exactly the same way. Yeah. Yeah, Because, I mean, then people are going to be like, what is that? I I got that already. What we're circling around is just the idea that we can't depend on our leaders, on our denominations on our teachers and spiritual fathers and mothers to do the work for us, to achieve the cross-cultural unity that Jesus calls us to. Um, So we've kind of got to do the work ourselves. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I am already weary. (laughs) This is a really good conversation where, you know, we agreed and we disagreed at a lot of different points. This is a big discussion. We started out this discussion just wanting to talk about denominations and unity. And then through it, you know, we realized what we're really talking about is, you know, culture and and race and privilege. Like all the all the stuff that we've been talking about is still connected to this. And there are no easy answers to find a way forward. So we thought, you know, let's just end on a benediction. Just a way to encourage everyone to be able to see that. We have to let faith be bigger than we think it is. So, you know, if you are a believer in Christ and you want to figure out in your own life how to honor Jesus, you know, while still being who you are, here's my benediction for you. May you be able to find Jesus, not just in the places you've always found him, and not just among the brothers and sisters that you're able to share so much love for, 
but may you find Jesus in new spaces. May you be able to seek Him and find Him in the uncomfortable spaces. May the Holy Spirit lead you down paths that you might not be familiar with, but in that path, to find a faith more vibrant and more full of joy than you ever thought possible. Thanks for listening, guys. This has been another amazing episode of our Judson podcast. You can find us, of course, on Instagram and Twitter. Give us a thumbs up or a like at Judson Podcast or email us your questions, your thoughts about this episode, info at judsonpodcast.com. Bye. <laughs> That's my valley girl. Goodbye. Has eight notes. <laughs>